Peter, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing good, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for doing this, and you're, you're kind of winging in sort of from, from Canada. Where, where are you exactly? Yeah, I pre- first off, yeah, I appreciate the invite. Uh, ha- happy to have a discussion. And yeah, I'm on the east coast of Canada, so it's uh, around noon right now, and it's actually sunny today, so it gets gloomy at times, so similar probably to where, where you're at, but it's nice today, so I'll take it. Good, good stuff, good stuff. Now, um, you've, you've done a few um, podcasts in, in recent times, uh, which have been great, and I've listened to, to a few of them. So, you know, you sort of fall in the category of an expert guest. I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't put myself in that category. I usually avoid these types of things, but I've been saying yes and uh, doing the best I can. And um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that people want to hear, I guess, what I have to say. And hopefully I don't have... Uh, <laughs> hopefully it adds some value and, and people are interested but yeah I wouldn't consider myself an expert I'm still learning every day and each week I have a crisis of new things I, I need to learn and stuff I don't know <laughs> yeah I, I guess that's part of the journey though isn't it because you've you know you're you're well studied you've you've been um well I mean you you tell us I know what you've done but you you tell us where about your roots to where you are now yeah, I guess I got a weird background. People are always like, what do you do? Like, what's, because <laughs> I just like get too excited and I just want to do everything. So um, people know me in all these different roles and sometimes they, things will intersect and they're like, wait a minute, you do that too? And like, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a bit odd, but um, I guess I started out, I did a degree in kinesiology, uh, University of Calgary. So like uh, human sciences, biology, anatomy, biomechanics, that type of stuff. And I grew up as a skateboarder, um, had a lot of different types of like skateboard related injuries and um, seen a lot of healthcare practitioners over the years and had some good experiences with uh, uh, chiropractors, um, but also like horrible experiences, um, but met some chiropractors that were more kind of like evidence-based, uh, treat adults with MSK conditions, follow guidelines, help with self-management and exercise and that type of stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's, that seems cool. Like that's, that's kind of what I want to do. So I knew that early on. So I went uh, to Toronto and went to the, the Cairo school there and uh, finished that program, I guess in 2013. And then I moved uh, to the East coast, started practicing in private practice. And um, my first week in practice, I started as a graduate student as well, doing, doing research. So mm-hmm. uh, during my kind of Cairo education, I, I got more interested in research and uh, wanted to kind of do it all. I was like, oh, I want to do clinical practice. I want to do research. So um, started that, that was a master's program in rehabilitation research in physiotherapy at Dalhousie. So started practicing, started uh, doing research, but also teaching in the, in the physiotherapy program here and there started helping with le- uh, lectures and labs and, and tutorials and, uh, over the years, I was like, oh, this academic thing seems kind of interesting. So went straight through, did a, a PhD. Um, and then, yeah, over the years, just got more excited about research and slowly transitioned out of clinical practice. And that leads me up to where I'm at now. So I'm a, a postdoc researcher at McGill University. That's mm-hmm. in also in Canada. So in uh, Montreal, um, mm-hmm. but I'm physically located right now in, in Halifax so on the East Coast. So that's my bit of whirlwind of, of kind of the stuff that I've been involved in. And um, I currently, yeah, just full-time research. I'm still involved with some teaching, um, but currently don't see patients just trying to move some research stuff along. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's fascinating. And I see, you know, that, that journey is, is one that brings great 
value and, and strength and and I, and I know that from a personal experience of had a bit of a convoluted route to, to where I am and and do, do you think that people viewed your your journey in a, in a positive way or or have you had some negative comments as well uh haven't had anything negative people are just like I like I just get too excited and I'm like I want to do research I want to do teaching I want to be a clinician and like I've done like some government work like health health research evaluation and I just like the more stuff I do like sometimes it seems a bit off or like a, a bit different than kind of my trajectory but it always ends up coming coming full circle and connecting in some, some ways or another so it ends up being a an asset I think or a benefit um but yeah some people are like what you did so much school or like you did all these kind of different things and why and I'm like I don't know I'm just interested and had some opportunities and um, no desire to like being a poor graduate student, student that didn't bother me that much. I think that's the biggest thing is like just being able to kind of live a bit strife and <laughs> endure, endure the years. Um, I didn't mind that. So I don't know. That's a big barrier, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's an obvious enthusiasm and energy and a passion there. So maybe you dampen down any kind of, um, you know, questioning around, you know, the, the route that you, you took. Um, but you, it sounds like you kind of roll with it as well, which is a bit like skateboarding, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the thing. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some parallels. I think most of the things like life lessons I've learned is through skateboarding and like just just failure and, and trying and looking at maybe things a bit differently and skateboarding, at least historically, it was always going against the grain, like a kind of a counterculture. And that's kind of like what qualitative research is. I'm, I mostly do qualitative work and theoretical work. And it's kind of like the punk rock of academia. It's like just pushing <laughs> against the grain and in a good way. So that's attractive to me. So there's parallels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's always been something you've been pulled towards is kind of swimming against the tide, questioning things. Yeah, probably annoying to a lot of people just <laughs> like, uh, uh, just like, I guess, yes, yeah, skateboarding, like you're a critical thinker, you like, push against the hierarchies, push against like the these kind of power differentials and like the, the status quo. And I guess that trickled into my research I haven't thought about this much but seeing that we're talking about skateboarding it, it is probably it's a huge influence probably in terms of the way I think and the way I see the world and the way I approach things so yeah just like even like I think a pain theory is just like pushing against like historically how we viewed pain and thinking about new ways we can, can kind of think about pain and that type of stuff I don't know it's attractive to me so I'm just running with it we'll see we'll see where it takes me yeah well, I, I mean, I think it's superb. And, and I think it's exactly what, I mean, it's just my opinion, but which, you know, but uh, I think it's exactly what the pain world needs, if there is a pain world, um, because there's, there's too much, there's too much stuck in the mud. Um, and, and that's where I see a lot of the problems lying. And the work you're doing, which we'll come in, come to and, and dig into, I think is, is opening people up to to all sorts of possibilities, um, and and certainly what I've seen in terms of comments about you know the work you're doing and and with some of the other guys you're working with has all been very very positive, which is exciting. It must be exciting for you. Yeah, I'm always surprised that people are interested because um, <laughs> it's like some of the stuff is like it's just different, like the qualitative work, the theoretical work, and. I'll do stuff and I'm like, oh, nobody will read this. And it's just, we'll sit in a journal somewhere. And then people start pick clinicians, picking it up and getting emails and people excited about it and doing podcasts like this. And I'm just like 
surprised that people are interested in it, but um, mm -hmm. maybe it was just good timing, partly just because people are just in the rehab professions, at least looking at more kind of like philosophical approaches and questioning kind of traditional pain theories, questioning traditional treatment approaches and maybe it's just good timing. So people are looking for something a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the rebels are, the rebels are definitely. <laughs> yeah. Some people, I don't think I've made any dent in <laughs> any type of mainstream stuff at, at all, but yeah, the, the fringes maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the predominant models in musculoskeletal care remain, you know, biomedical and, uh, and that's, you know, across the healthcare professions, um, including, you know, all the, the physical therapists and whatnot still, you know, really sort of focusing on, on that. And, and that was your training, of course. And, you know, likewise, mind and physio. Um, what was it that kind of moved you away from that? Was there an attraction or do you think things just didn't work? Yeah, I guess, yeah, most of my training was pretty kind of biomedical oriented, like heavy focus on anatomy, biomechanics, like phys physical kind of assessment, very kind of yeah, mechanical approach to pain and, and patient care. Um, but I always had this kind of like lingering affinity to like the, me the medical humanities, social sciences. So, um, and that interest just grew more and more over the years. And uh, I guess it started, I guess, if you're talking about moving or adding on to the biomedical model, like interest in the biopsychosocial model, like um, that seems like more and more people are interested in that. And um, the deeper I dove into that though, I was like, well, what's the theoretical foundation and reviewing like George Ingalls historical work and looking at the different ways people talk about the biopsychosocial model. And then I was like, nobody's really like questioned this. Like, it's kind of just like, at least in the last five years, everyone's just like, you just need to take this approach and that's the gold standard. And then started just asking people like, well, what does it mean to you? Like, what is a biopsychosocial approach to clinical care? And then people were kind of like, I don't know, it's just not the biomedical model. <laughs> and they're like, it's, it's different. I'm like, well, how is it different? They're like, well, we appreciate like, I don't know, yellow flags, social factors. And then they're like, and I'm like, what else? And I guess people, people are like, I don't, I don't really know. I'm like, what's the kind of theoretical foundation and just start asking questions. And, and then I wrote some, some work like with Catherine Harmon on like kind of questioning the biopsychosocial model and its foundation and maybe some gaps that it has. So um, that's kind of where my head's been at over the last couple of years of like, maybe like the, obviously the biopsychosocial model, a huge advancement and like kind of questioning the biomedical approach and saying, we need to integrate these other factors. But like, I think there's still lots of room, um, <laughs> to, to kind of advance these kind of ideas. And I guess in clinical practice, like I, I see these, all these different ways that this kind of biopsychosocial model is applied and, and maybe ways that just more closely re resemble like the biomedical approach. And I'm like, is that actually different? Is it just kind of lip service that we're taking this, this BPS approach and not actually really doing much different. So I don't know, that's where my head's kind of been, been at these days, mm. questioning that type of stuff. Yeah. I, I guess there's a risk then that, that instead of, you know, a Venn diagram with two circles, it's just a Venn diagram with three. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, I guess we talked about that in one paper where it's like kind of trichotomizing or dichotomizing the biopsychosocial model. So kind of chopping it up. So you, you have a patient comes in and it's like, well, is this mechanical pain or is this kind of like some people use the term like psychogenic pain, look for yellow flags. Okay. Well, there's no yellow flags. Like it must be just kind of mechanical pain. And so my kind of approach has been kind of to question that is like, well, no, like social processes always 
come into play. We're always in a social environment. Uh, our context shapes the experience of pain, the meaning of pain. It's a very dynamic fluid process. And it's not like an either or, like this is just mechanical pain or this is psychogenic pain or this is mental or this is physical. So a lot of my work has been kind of questioning these, these buckets that we put people into. And um, I guess we use buckets to make sense of things, but the more we advance our knowledge, sometimes I think we can start to collapse things a little bit or, or at least look at more of the kind of dynamics between these these different things yeah yeah so you you see more of that if if people can appreciate more of the the interrelatedness or the interconnectedness of it and how that's kind of working that that will be a step in the right direction yeah and i think that's what george ingle wanted he like he wanted to like he, like in some of his writings it's just like everything's always connected like every <laughs> like uh we have to always appreciate biopsychosocial processes but i think when we start to apply it especially in research and clinical practice like it's our tendency to start to split these things up and um so i've been involved with some work uh recently with uh, ben cormack and, and joe gibson uh writing about some of these things and uh the different ways kind of the biopsychosocial model has been applied. So hopefully that'll see the light of light of day at some point. Yeah. So you, so you're, you're inquiring as to how people are, are applying that model. Yeah. I haven't done a lot of like empirical work on this, but I know people have um, like, I, I did one study, I guess, a couple like 2016 looking at clinicians like uh, approaches and whether they actually screen and manage uh, psychosocial factors or kind of take a biopsychosocial approach. And um, yeah, a lot, most of the clinicians, we interviewed chiropractors and um, they, they really struggled with, with the kind of psychosocial elements in their practice and more just had this affinity to the, the, the anatomical uh, biomechanical approaches and uh, for the most part, they, and they didn't feel comfortable or, or feel trained or prepared to navigate the psychological or social elements. So some people said, I know it's well, actually quite a few people said it's important. They know it's important. Um, but they're saying, well, I don't really know what to do. I can pick up on these things, but I don't know how to manage them. And even like even making referrals is difficult sometimes to a, another healthcare practitioner, a psychologist, or somebody that has this more kind of psychologically informed practice. So, and I know in the literature, like physiotherapy is the same. Other health, uh, physicians are the same time and time again these kind of psychosocial uh, aspects seem to be neglected or, or there's less attention to them. Yeah. Mm. I suppose it's, it's easy to blame the clinicians, but at the end of the day, you've also got a dynamic with the people coming to see you and what their beliefs and expectations are, because if they're strongly in, in uh, the, hold the view that, well, no, this is something wrong with my, my knee. There's nothing wrong anywhere else. Then to say, well, look, actually we, we need some other kind of input here. It could be a hard sell. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah not easy not easy stuff that's for sure and i guess I, like the the attitude that i've been taking is like it's a full cultural thing right it's like um we have this kind of view of what pain is and it's very kind of mechanical and and that's uh, permeated throughout society clinicians and patients but um i do look at like the the role of the clinician as like quite influential like i think of like the work of like jenny setchell dr jenny setchell and others like um I think of that one study where it was like, uh, I think they interviewed people with persistent pain and looked at their kind of perspectives and their beliefs on persist persistent pain. I don't know if you've, you saw the study, but um, what they found is like most of the people had kind of these kind of like very mechanical bodies and machine views of, of, their, of their low back pain. And most of the participants said they learned those beliefs from their healthcare practitioners. Um, so 
So it suggests that we do have an important role there in terms of like shaping a person's understanding of their pain. So obviously there's friends and family and media and all these other things that, that, that shape the way that we view and experience our, our bodies. But uh, the clinician has that role too, for, I think for, for better or for worse. And a lot of my work is focused on the worse side yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, maybe I'm not the best person to be on the, the positive encouragers podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I mean, on that then, you know, it, it highlights the importance and, and I often say this around, you know, the past medical history is not just as kind of a list of things that have happened to someone that you put in a box at the bottom. This, this is their life story and important parts of it that is really shaping their views of healthcare and perhaps pain in that moment when they're with you. Yeah, and I think that's one concern I have is like, a lot of people are saying that we need to take this biopsychosocial approach and or, or kind of like under the label, like personalized medicine or precision medicine. And it's like using algorithms and stratifying care and getting to people to fill out all these kind of tick boxes and questionnaires, which I think is great, like huge scientific and clinical advancements. Um, but there's sometimes where there's this trend where we're overlooking or minimizing those uh, kind of interactive components uh, with, with the person and uh, an appreciation for the kind of qualitative narratives, their, their unique concerns that I don't think can be fully quantified. And if we're talking about the pain experience, like my perspective, and I think uh, most people are, are it's moving that direction, like it's a subjective experience, like does a zero to 10 uh, scale capture the full experience and its meanings and the, and the impact it has on the person? Um, pro probably not. Um, so, so this kind of qualitative narrative, in addition to quantitative approaches, is the direction that I've been kind of advocating for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's very hard to capture, you know, the, the texture and the tone of what someone's experience was like to them, you know, the language that they choose. And of course, they've only got, you know, the dictionary in there that they've got, if you see what I mean. And, yeah. and somehow with those existing words, they've got to describe experiences according to the questions that we that we ask, the lead that we take. And yeah. so just letting people talk and giving them that space and time to be to be heard. Yeah, you can't capture that on a form. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I get I get it, like why people are driven that way. And we have kind of social constraints and environmental constraints and clinics. And I know that was always my challenge, like working for people in, in private practice and it's just like I always wanted to spend more time and and, and, <laughs> and it's like people are like that doesn't make money and I'm like well maybe, maybe I don't want to make money like <laughs> I don't know I always push I pushed back I, I did work in some clinics they're like oh if you cut your time in half like you can make twice as much money and I'm just like well I don't want to do that and that's not what's right for patients like you look at the literature and time and time again like Patients are, with people with persistent pain are saying like they feel like they're not listened to. They feel like their 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 concerns aren't heard. They feel like they're rushed. They feel like um, the life impact of their pain hasn't been fully explored. So um, yeah, I think we need to spend a bit more time. But obviously, that creates a variety of issues. Yeah. 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 If you sort of reflect back and think about how you would have thought about pain as a skateboarder. <laughs> then, then, then as a chiropractor and now as someone who, who studies it through a completely different lens, can you see the, see, uh, the differences? 
Yeah, yeah, and it's embarrassing now that I, now that I think about it. Like how far I've I've gone. Like I think I probably had like the standard view of pain like early when I was younger. Like pain equals tissue damage. Increased pain equals uh, increased damage. You got to protect yourself. Like increased pain equals uh, yeah. Got to back it up a, li a little bit and. That now that I think about it, like I haven't really talked about this stuff, but uh, I did have clinicians like early on when I had diff different injuries, like be extremely cautious for like really benign MSK conditions. So being like, oh, well, bed at the time, like bed rest, like um, you need to kind of like not not do this stuff. Um, even in Cairo school, I, I remember like I had a I had a pretty gnarly wrist wrist sprain from skateboarding. And I was just like, oh, I'll go into the clinic, get some treatment and, and, and bounce back. And um, when clinicians like you can't skateboard anymore, like this is like, um, you, do you want to have a career or not? Like it, with this stuff, you can't just hurt yourself like this and, and damage your wrist doesn't cause permanent damage. Like maybe tore your TFCC cartilage, like all this type of stuff. And I'm like, I've, I think back to, I've never talked about this, but I think back to it now and I'm just like, um, I'm glad I didn't listen to their, their advice and, and moved on and did the things I enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, my, over the years I had, uh, I transitioned, like I did get, maybe get some, some, I had kind of a mechanical perspective, but the more I learned about pain, the more I like, yeah, stopped seeking care, stopped and, and increased self-management and, and, uh, appreciated natural history a lot, a lot better. Yeah. For a lot of things. Well, the, I mean, maybe in the rebel venue sort of saved you because some people would have taken that advice. Yeah, I, I, I definitely did with some things and, and probably had a lot more suffering than maybe I had to have had. But uh, yeah, over the years, learning more about pains really has helped me kind of, I think, personally with different things that I've had and in, in, a, in a good way. Um, so being, being a lot more resilient, um, yeah, pu pushing things uh, a lot quicker than maybe I normally would have in the past. And um, so trying to practice what I preach. So um, I'm not one to, yeah, <laughs> run out and get treatment like for, for, for every little thing. It's like, let's see how this, this goes. Like, I don't need imaging. I don't need these types of things. Like sprain my ankle. It's like, okay, what's the auto ankle rules. I don't need a, I don't need an x-ray just for, for my peace of mind. Like mm. we'll, we'll wait it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's gold, isn't it? That's gold. When when you sort of look back then and, and think about when you started to getting into getting into pain, almost doesn't sound right, does it? Saying this, but <laughs> sort of, was there was there someone in particular? Was there you know a lecturer or, or a clinician or something that you read that kind of sparked a? Oh, this is this is an interesting thread. Yeah. Um... I think of like my Cairo education, there's this guy, uh, Kim Ross. So he did a lot of interesting research on like the specificity of spinal manipulation. So um, it's been a while since I've, I've read the work, but like, so he was an instructor there and some of his work really challenged this idea that like, oh, if you mobilize or manipulate a joint at this particular level, like that's the kind of key to success and you got to target these specific joints. And um, his work really kind of, challenge the kind of traditional kind of pathoanatomical approach and this kind of targeted uh, approach to treatment and started to suggest that um, maybe this manual therapy approaches have more kind of generalized effects and we don't have to be as specific as we originally thought 
He did some lectures on placebo effects and, and the importance of context. Um, so I always thought that was interesting, like early on, like, oh, like <laughs> um, context shapes the experience of pain, all these other things. It's not just about the, the damaged tissue or the activation of nerves. So um, I think that was quite influential. And, and then I, over the years, just started reading, like getting into the philosophy literature, philosophy of mind. So um, I guess even before Cairo school and when I was in my undergrad, I picked up this book, um, Philosophical Foundations of Neuroscience, I believe it's called Bennett and Hacker. So um, I think that's quite a foundational book. I don't know why I got it or where I got it, but like, just like super technical and like had no philosophy training, but like picked that up and I was like, oh, there's so many radical different ideas in here and just started kind of reading chapters here and there. And um, it's still on my shelf today and haven't looked at it in a while, but I think that's an inspiration as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are, this might sound a bit romantic in a way, but um, you know, I think these are sort of pivotal moments because you, you could have in theory picked up Maitland's edition five or something um good stuff in there i'm sure as well um but what a different path it may have been yeah if you look at my bookshelf there's a lot more orthopedic and anatomy textbooks than there are like social sciences and philosophy <laughs> so um but yeah i've i've always had tried to have a balance which is horrible because it's like you can't do it all and you can't be like an expert in it all and maybe that's why i don't feel like an expert because like my days, like, it's like, okay, I got to read a little bit of neuroscience, got to read a bit of uh, basic sciences, physiology, I got to read social sciences, cultural stuff, philosophy, and I try to balance it out. And um, what's the kind of saying, like, jack of all trades, master of none, maybe that's the approach. So I just get too excited about everything and try to do it all, um, and then end up getting nowhere, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can really relate to that. Because I think it sounds like we're on the same page. I mean, I often describe myself as being a geek around pain and um, it's, it's almost a, an umbrella term for so many other fields. Um, and it's, it's almost like you can pick up anything, even a number uh, novels and there's something in there. And you think, oh, that's an interesting idea. Or, or where's that come from when you end up sort of going down that route? So, you know, it's, um, it's a challenge and it requires a lot of discipline are you, are you disciplined? Uh, I don't, maybe in some ways, uh, <laughs> my, my, my qualitative research uh, kind of hat makes me quite loose and, and flexible and, and not as structured. So I don't know, depends on what facet of my life. Um, yeah. I wear different hats. Yeah. Cause you, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're producing work. It's, it's coming out, you know, you've written a number of papers and that, you know, that, that takes dedication and, and commitment. And so you've got to sit down and, and do it. So I'm assuming you have some kind of daily routine that you follow. Yeah. I, ch I chip away each day and yeah, I'm probably not a good academic. Cause I like, I see people produce way more stuff than I do. And it's like, um, I do it backwards, maybe. Once again, maybe that's the 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 the, rep, the the punk rock rebel. Like I see most people, the, the approach is like, okay, well, take paper, take all these ideas and this work, and split it up into as many different manuscripts as you can, and slummy slice it, and like produce as many output, like individual outputs. And I'm like, how would I do the opposite? Let's take enough of content for ten papers and put it into one, <laughs> all, all in one place. Like just like the worst idea for for a, a career move, but like. <laughs> Um, maybe that 
I don't know. That's probably why I'm interested in like philosophy and it's like the social sciences. Cause that's like rewarded in a sense, like um, quality over quantity and like trying to produce some thoughtful pieces that are maybe a bit longer or a bit different and don't just fit into this nice little, Two two thousand word manuscript. So there's a role for obviously all these types of things, but yeah, my my work's probably different. I know I know I feel different than most of my colleagues, and just in the way that I approach things. But um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But um, probably a bad thing from the the idea of like people that like <laughs> like traditional academia. But uh, that's fine with me. Well, I so I maybe I'm biased, but I find it refreshing, and and um, it's yeah. It, it's something that, that I find exciting. If um, if you were to think about paying now, so so right here, right now, it doesn't have to be a, an exact definition. But but what's what's your kind of current position on pain and what it is? Yeah, it changes every week. Um, so <laughs> that's why I said right now because yeah, I, I would imagine that next Tuesday it'll be different. <laughs> I haven't thought about it yet today. I was, that was my, uh, in my, my schedule for 6 PM. Right. Ah, um, <laughs> yeah, yesterday's version then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't mind like the, the newer definition by I ask. Um, it, I think it's, uh, an improvement, like, I guess, especially beyond like the notes that were in the previous, uh, previous iteration. So I had kind of complained a lot in the past about that one note about like, uh, pain being kind of for psychological reasons, if you can't kind of find this kind of bio uh, physi physiological kind of process. So I'd complained about that note a bunch and, and, and wrote about that. And um, they actually removed that in the, the latest uh, iteration. Um, so it's less kind of dualistic in a sense. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that. So um, I, I think it's, it's a good working definition. It's so hard though, to, to settle on something, right. That, yeah. that pleases everybody. And, um, I've been interested in the kind of more philosophical aspects, things like uh, 4E cognition, 5E cognition, and activism, ecological approaches. So looking at those approaches to perception, which it's not necessarily uh, incongruent with kind of the best accepted definition, but add some kind of different elements and different ways to kind of think about pain and, and subjectivity. So that's where my head's been at, kind of looking at those, that literature to, to get insight and um, yeah. Can I ask questions with you too? <laughs> so I feel like I'm, I'm ramp, rambling a ton, but, but I'm interested. Like now that I think about it, like what, what drew you to like the, the philosophical sides? Cause I know you're, you're like me, like diving into all these, these different elements. And like, you've had a, such a wonderful roster of people you bring on this, this podcast. So I look at like in Mick Thacker, like Roger Carey, like Mark Miller, like, um, though they have very kind of unique perspectives and they're people that I definitely look up to. And, so what, what got you that, that direction? Like, yeah. Mm, good question. Mm, you're turning the table. I like it. Um, have you done some psychology as well? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, a, not a time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So look, my, I've got two um, main mentors, uh, friends. Uh, so Mick Thacker being one of them, uh, Mike Pegg being another. He's, Mike Pegg's not in the world of pain per se. Um, but that's where I get my coaching hat from. Yeah. Um, largely. Um, and so, yeah, Mick, I've known for years. And so, you know, and I did his pain masters at King's, you know, years ago now. And, and he, he introduced me and continues to, you know, I suppose he, 
was the first person who I was aware of was was sort of bringing philosophy into pain. Um, and we would chat and and uh, and he would point out things and 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 such like. And yeah, so it grew from there. And then I spent probably up until well, probably up to lockdown, I suppose going to quite a few of these smaller conferences um, with the likes of, you know, Anil Seth and Andy Clark there was, um, so, and Mark Miller um, and, and, and others. Um, and, and they were great because it was, a, for, it was the first time going to sort of mini conferences or meetings, whatever you want to call them, where it was just a level playing field. It was just, you know, you, anyone would chat to anyone. There was no ego. There was no, oh, these are the plenary speakers and you can't get anywhere near them because they're sur surrounded by, you know, a bunch of bodyguards and, and, and other <laughs> followers, which is yeah. all a bit of a bore. Um, so, um, and that was great. And so much learning, you know, just incredible stuff from, from these people. Um, and I say, just being able to chat casually about it. And, and I was usually the only clinician in the room and they seemed pleased that someone was there who was interested or is interested and, and wanted to be able to distill this work that's being discussed in academic circles and bring it into, into the real world. And I suppose that's how I've always seen myself taking a pro modern approaches from coaching and physiotherapy and, and science and, and philosophy and and just trying to make it into something practical um with with other sort of useful tools like motivational interviewing and compassion focused therapy and these kind of stuff which i have done training in and, and yeah. just kind of you know bring it into simple stuff so yeah that's my journey and, and it's like you i'm very excited and and i've got you know zillions of books i'm surrounded by papers that i haven't read and all that kind of stuff and when am i going to do it and you know, so it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to be in, um, but but quite overwhelming at times as well. Yeah, for for listeners, I got a huge smile, just like excited to to hear that and, and resonate with it a ton. So I appreciate the work you're doing, and yeah, people like Mick are definitely a, an influence on me as well, especially more more kind of recently. And um, yeah, just just a breath of fresh air, different different kind of perspective. So I remember reading his one short little editorial, like. Uh, I can't remember the, the full title, but I think it was like, is pain in the brain? <laughs> and it was just like, um, just, just things like that, that are, cause at the time, like, yeah, the whole kind of explain pain approach, like very popular. And you hear kind of that, 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 that narrative in clinics, like people are like, well, pain, just an opinion of the brain or an output of the brain. And he, he was kind of an early person in the, in the physiotherapy world, like kind of challenging that, that idea and kind of pushing against the grain. And um, so I resonated with a lot of that stuff still. So um awesome yeah 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 no i say we're, we're on the same page there um yeah but let's let's sort of dig into to more of that that philosophical side and, and i'm not a philosopher so so you have to excuse me on on that but i'm very interested in you know the five e's and, and how you're applying that so so maybe we could just kind of go through those and you just sort of briefly say what each one is because some people listening may not know um and then kind of how you're thinking about it in relation to pain <laughs> yeah yeah i'm not a philosopher either and uh, yeah i'm still navigating these ideas and uh, learning each day and yeah this is going to be tough but i'll i'll, I'll try <laughs> yeah yeah so okay well let's let's start with embodied yeah this is the thing where people like write about embodiment a lot of times and they don't define what it what it means and um some some of the kind of more 
academic scholars are like, there is no kind of clear definition and people define it in all these different ways. And like, really, you just got to kind of say what you mean when you're, you're, you're describing it. So um, I don't think I could do it, do it justice here, but um, in really kind of simple terms, like uh, the way that we experience the world is through the medium of our body. So um, a lot of kind of embodied and active approaches focus on, on action, um, how the way that we move depends on what we sense and what we sense depends on the way we move. And um, I think we can connect that, those ideas to, to pain. Um, in terms of like some of the, the philosophical foundations, so people often make this distinction if they're talking about embodiment between like kind of the the lived body or the kind of subjective body and the objective body or kind of like the, the living body. Um, so there's some, some nuanced differences between the two. So the, 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 the lived body would be like the person's subjective experience from a first person perspective. Whereas the body as an object or the living body would be like the biological body, the physical body, the one that can be observed from a third person perspective. So like a, a clinician or, or a scientist. So um, one way to kind of think about that, uh, uh, I, I do some work with uh, Dr. Sabrina Koenig. So she's a philosopher and we were doing a talk the other day and she used the example of like eating disorders um, to kind of different, to, to show that kind of parallel between the lived body and the living body. So people that may look in the mirror and they see themselves as overweight or a certain type of body figure. Uh, whereas from a kind of a third person perspective, they're, they're very kind of underweight and, and, and maybe there's some health underlying kind of health issues as well, physical health issues. So people's experience of their body can be much different than the kind of physical body. So they don't map on nicely uh, to, to each other. So you think of like pain examples, phantom limb pain. So person's lived experience is feeling pain in a limb that's not even physically physically there showing that kind of discrepancy so these are the kind of ideas when people talk about talk about embodiment um but uh yeah there's lots more that can be said and in different nuances but maybe that's just a kind of a general introduction mm -hmm. the 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 body shapes the mind in a sense um as well as a common kind of thing people say yeah, no, that, that's great. And it, it sounds like there's a sort of a, a circular thing going on there. There's no kind of start and end point. Yeah, exactly. And people have written about that kind of circularity where kind of the, uh, the, the, the lived experience can shape our physiology and our physiology can shape our experience. So it is very kind of, yeah, cir circular in a sense and kind of interesting, interesting idea to think about. Yeah. There, I mean, you may or may not be able to answer this, and, and either way, fine. But it was just something that, that occurred to me, because I this is that's the kind of stuff I think about quite a lot, and, and try and think, well, how's that useful to someone who's experiencing pain? And do do you see a practical application of of just just that? I know that's sort of a bit of a silo, and we're trying to say no, let's not have silos, but but just for sort of theoretical purposes, in in kind of explaining someone's experience um or helping them understand their experience yeah for sure i was just letting my cat in here she was scratching at the <laughs> scratching at the door um <laughs> yeah i think there is implications because i think historically like we thought of just like uh, or we just kind of zoned in on that kind of objective body so if you can't find some sort of like 
dysfunction or, or uh, issue that can, that's causing pain, it must just be all in the person's head or uh, people have kind of viewed that with skepticism, like the pain must be less, less real. And I think if we take these more kind of like embodied approaches to clinical practice, we have to appreciate that that person's experience may be very, very different than and disconnected to what their kind of body's looking like. So from a third person perspective, the person's functioning very well, the lab test, x-rays, MRI are all, are all within normal limits. Um, yet the person's reporting these kind of very different experiences that the clinician is like trying to make sense of. And I think when we start to think about this kind of like lived versus living body or subject versus object, um, it starts to make sense of some of those things. Um, so I think there is clinical clinical application and um, we can't directly see somebody else's pain. We can't see it from their third person perspective. And there is no, at least I would say there's no objective measure of pain that we can use from a scientific or a, a third person kind of clinical perspective. So we still have to rely on their self-report. Um, and I think traditionally that's been undermined. It's been uh, kind of undervalued. Um, so people kind of always like sidestepped the person's narrative um, or didn't explore it. And it was more just like, even if the narrative was explored, it was more of just a means to finding the anatomical, uh, pathoanatomical dysfunction or diagnosis. So kind of a reductionist approach, like, well, they're just going to lead me to the disorder and then I'll be able to find it. Um, mm -hmm. So this more, these more kind of embodied and active approaches definitely emphasize more the kind of lived experience aspect and uh, validating a person's uh, unique, unique experiences that the, that the, the, they say they're having. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a gnawing thought then that came up when you were talking about the kind of the difference between what, what is being lived and experienced and, and perceived um, versus, you know, another perspective in a sense. I know it's not exactly the same, but of course, predictive processing and, and the kind of the, the errors that are being produced, that, that kind of bubbled up then. And I know that you refer to that in your, your writings as well. How, how do you tie that in with, with this thinking? Yeah, yeah. I haven't done a ton of thinking about it, but yeah, I did in integrate in, in that 2019 paper, like um, a variety of kind of PP elements. Cause I, I do think some people would say they're not as congruent, but um, there's a lot of academics and philosophers that are kind of bridging em embodiment and inactive kind of approaches with, with predictive processing. And so um, the, I guess the idea, like at least the simple way kind of that, that I understand it is like we, uh, we perceive what we kind of predict in, in a sense. So if we have these really strong kind of predictions um, or the context is in a certain way that kind of leads us to, to kind of subconsciously predict uh, certain things, we can experience it in, in that way. Um, so there, I think there, that's where like illusions come into play. Like a lot of people that talk about predictive processing use these different kind of illusions, like the famous dress from, from back, uh, like that blew up uh, uh, and caused people to fight each other. <laughs> like the, the black and blue dress versus the gold and white, white dress. And um, nobody could make sense of it. It's like, how could we be looking at the same image and experiencing it very different ways? And so what people, academics, and there's been some papers on this have tried to, to do is like explain it in terms of predictive processing. So um, if I recall correctly, it's been a while since I've, I've talked about this, but like, I think the picture was taken on a cell phone and it was like a bit grainy and like, it was like, uh, there's a lot of ambiguity, like where's the light source? Is it indoors? Is it outdoors? And there's been some work that like 
um, the kind of subconscious predictions we make of where the light source is, whether it's indoors, outdoors, actually shapes our, 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 our perception of, of color. So um, it's like, a, I think a really simple example, well, it's a, it's a complex, maybe complex example, um, but showing how we can get pretty much the exact same stimulus um, uh, yet and looking at the same picture, yet it ex experience it in very, very different ways. And I think the same can be said about, about pain um, or any kind of other, other perception. So um, it's a subjective experience that's shaped by context, these predictions, expectations, our meaning, our meaning making that happens. And I think that's what makes it so frustrating for people to study is because it's just so fluid and complex if we're talking about the pain as a perception that uh, it gets, gets very, very muddy and difficult uh, pretty quick, yeah. Yeah, well, of course, Mick, Mick used that as an example for his, his excellent TED talk about arguing that pain's a perception rather than a, a sensation on kind of labelled lines and, and that kind of thing, you know, yeah. making, a, making a really good, um, good point there. Um, okay, so well, let's think about then Im embedded. So what does embedded mean to you? Yeah, I guess in simple terms, like we're always kind of in, in an environment, in and of, uh, of an environment, and our environment kind of shapes our, our cognitive processes, shapes our perception, shapes our actions. So um, one concept that I've been attracted to that's often used in the inactive literature is the idea of affordances. So um, affordances in kind of simple terms are, are action possibilities, um, and, and they're, uh, they're relational. So they depend on the relationship between a person um, and their environment. So uh, the affordance is shaped by the type of body the person has, um, their, their abil abilities, skills, their past history, but also what the environment, uh, like the physical and social environment, affords that particular individual. So it's a, it's a, kind, of, it's a kind of a tricky concept, but uh, in, I guess in simple terms, like our, our environment and our context always affords us certain types of uh, action possibilities and that shapes our perception, yeah. Yeah, and an interesting one there, more, sort of an example perhaps is, you know, someone with with uh, some kind of pain associated with sitting, yeah. And, and when they walk into a particular environment and see a particular chair, they'll either go, "Yeah, I can sit on that," or "No, that's that's not for me. If I sit on that, that's really going to hurt." I love that because that's an example we've been using lately with uh, the philosopher I've been working with, Dr. Koenigs, and we've been talking about chairs because philosophers always talk about chairs. Like, and when people <laughs> talk about affordances, they're like, for a, a, a typical human, like a chair affords us sitting, whereas for other creatures, it doesn't afford us sitting. And um, but you're exactly right. So we've been using that example of like people with pain can start to no longer view a chair as an opportunity to sit. Um, um, and they may avoid it. It's not as salient to them or doesn't afford certain types of action, may afford other types of action. So maybe you can kneel on it or lean up against it, but um, doesn't afford, afford sitting. So a goal of therapy, and people have talked about this, and we've talked a bit about it and written about it, is like, how can we open up affordances again? So um, if somebody's been avoiding sitting for a long time, but they want to sit, they want to go have dinner with, with friends and family and they want to sit, um, how can we actually start to open up those action possibilities to allow the person to sit, to, 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 to engage in these kind of meaningful activities? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I suppose there we're looking at forms of graded exposure and, and reframing the experience somehow. Yeah. And hundred percent. And that's the way that I've been kind of thinking about it is like, 
uh, integrating, you already mentioned like motivational interviewing as well, like great exposure, motivational interviewing, different types of approaches, changing the environment of it, maybe modulating the chair a bit, stacking up, stacking it up a bit higher um, and to start to build a person so that they can actually uh, uh, sit, sit comfortably. So I think of like examples, I guess going kind of full circle, like the, the, the words we use in clinics and maybe the, the, the theories of pain that we have, like if we take that kind of very biomedical approach, like I know I've definitely seen patients, I'm sure you have too, where it's, uh, they're told like, oh, you got a L5, L4, L5 disc bulge um, based on your MRI. And it's like, they're 40 years old. It's like pretty normal age related changes. And, um, but they're told like, don't sit, like that's just gonna cause too much pressure at your disc. And um, they're often not told, oh, maybe this is a temporary thing. And then people go on, they're, they're avoiding sitting at all costs for years sometimes, and unless they absolutely have to. And it's like, how do we work with that person to start to open up those action possibilities again? Um, that's uh, it's a kind of just the di- stuff that already clinicians already do, but maybe using just a slightly different uh, uh, lens to it and a different approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess it sounds like helping people to set their expectations at the right level. So they actually achieve it and, and hence feel good rather than setting the expectations too high not achieving it and then feeling bad or, or feeling that they've just repeated something that hasn't worked before. Yeah. That's always the challenge is like, yeah, setting people up for success and uh, breaking it up and, and moving, moving towards uh, their goal in kind of small incremental steps. And uh, I think a lot of people just think this is like a fixed process. Like I know if I ran into that a little bit where people think like graded exposure, or even graded exercise is just like, completely fixed and it's not like an up and down process but it is more like a roller coaster yeah 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 there's there's a huge amount of as you know you know nuance and and being able to have a conversation about the experience to help guide that person towards realizing actually what they have achieved within it because it's very easy to focus on the stuff that hasn't gone well rather than to focus on the fact that they tried, they put effort in, they gave it a go, they had the right mindset. Maybe we might tweak the knobs and parameters a little bit, but, but actually your efforts were spot on. So a bit like when we talk about how you should praise and encourage kids focused on their effort and attitude rather than focusing on the prize. So focus on the process, not the prize. Love, love it. Love it. And yeah. And I should probably mention too, like a lot of these kind of philosophical ideas and like affordances and inactivism and embodiment, like these aren't things that I would ever say to patients. Like I wouldn't be using those terms. And I more, you mentioned Mick and I mentioned he's been an inspiration for me. Like, I think he, he talks about it or I might be wrong, but like kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, so we have to have like all the stuff under the water that we know, physiology, philosophy, all these things. Um, and, and what the patient gets is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. So I'm not going to be like, I'm not advocating like, oh, we need to talk to patients about affordances. It's more like having this kind of like theoretical foundation can help clinicians kind of use these approaches with more intent and a bit more structure. And uh, it's not not like we're talking about affordances with patients. Maybe you could, but um, that's not where my head's at right now. Yeah. 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 So so it's about, you know, choosing the right language so that you can be on the on that level with them and create this this i sometimes call it the, you know the magic in in the relationship that, that can't necessarily be quantified but but you kind of you know the, the pure scientists won't like this but but there's definitely a 
feeling quality to when you're in rapport with someone, whether it be a mate on a podcast or, or working with someone who's come to, to for your help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and being fluid with that and open up, open to these different ideas. And um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's challenging though. And I think part of like what this philosophy adds is like making it less likely for us to fragment things uh, or, or split things up. And so I, I talked about kind of the biopsychosocial model and maybe how it's been applied in maybe different ways. And um, I think maybe ideas like affordances make it less likely for us to start to fragment things. Um, so immediately with this kind of relational concept, we have to consider the, 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 the full person uh, and their environment, their particular context and the interaction between the two. Um, and, and then you add in that kind of element of embodiment, you need to appreciate both the kind of like the lived body, but also the living body. So I think it, it starts to help us like avoid falling into maybe some of those traps um, that historically we fell into and maybe results in, in suboptimal care or missed elements that we, we, we've historically kind of overlooked. Yeah. No, I think it does. I think it does. The, the third one then is, is enacted. You've already sort of doffed your hat to it slightly, but, but, but what's enacted to you? Yeah, it, that's, that's a challenging one. So it really just builds on these kind of em, embodiment ideas and has a strong focus on action. So um, the, the kind of movement of an activism or an active approach really kind of challenges those kind of really traditional kind of uh, computational computer-like approaches to the brain. Um, so a lot of people had this like strong focus where they're like, well, cognition or the mind is just in the brain. And we just need to kind of look in there at the neural patterns and that'll kind of explain everything and give us this kind of essence of the experience and uh, an active approaches really push against that and say, well, no, that's a really kind of narrow reductionist approach. We need to look at that full person, but also how they interact in their environment and how that interaction brings forth meaning, brings forth the different ways that we experience our, our bodies and our world. And um, so very kind of like, I don't like the word holistic, but that, that is what it is, like a more holistic kind of uh, dynamic action oriented approach to the mind. Um, but people have been applying it in many, many different ways. So people have been applying kind of an active approaches to clinical reasoning and active approaches to understanding music, understanding the therapeutic alliance, like it's been used in all these different ways. So really the way I've been kind of looking at it lately is like, it's this, I, all these kind of like I, uh, ideas and concepts that we can draw from to make sense of clinical phenomena uh, in kind of new and different ways. So that was like probably a horrible summary <laughs> people, the hardcore academics would be like, Oh, you missed so much nuance and uh, details, but uh, that's my best I got right now for yeah. a brief little summary. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And then, then we move on to, to emotive, which, which I think is one you've brought in, isn't it? Yeah. Others have talked about this too. And um, really, I think part of the, the goal in that paper was just to kind of split it up in a way for that's a bit manageable to, for people to kind of understand these concepts, but really they're all interconnected and interrelated. So most inactivists would say, this idea of cognition or kind of meaning making always involves elements of emotion. So we, from a first person perspective, uh, we always have kind of a, a concerned point of view. So things have different kind of valences to us, so positive and negative, uh, and that shapes how we kind of engage in the environment. So 
Um, the idea is that like cognition always involves emotion um, kind of broadly understood. So it made sense just to integrate that element just because if the paper was on pain. Um, so most people consider pain to be an emotional experience. So um, I, I haven't read that paper in a while, but like, I believe I just talked about how um, we should really always consider kind of the emotive aspects of cognition and the different meanings that people assign to their experiences kind of positive and negative. Yeah. 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 I, I suppose that sort of makes me think of, um, you know, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work, um, you know, around the constructs of emotion and the role of the brain and, and obviously coming through a, a predictive processing lens. Is, is that something you draw upon at all? Yeah, I, I love I love her all her work and like um, amazing academic and I, I see a ton of parallels um, and 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 there's it nicely I think is very congruent with uh, these kind of embodied and active approaches combined with predictive processing. So um, I, yeah, really appreciate the work that she's been doing and uh, I've been I, more recently drawing more and more from it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And then, and then the, the fifth and, and final one is, is this notion of it being extended. What, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, this is kind of like the most more radical one. I know you definitely know, you probably know more about kind of extended approaches than I do with your, your philosophical interests. So you feel free to add on to maybe my butchered, butchered <laughs> uh, 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 approach here. But I guess kind of running along with that kind of uh, enact, uh, I was talking about the kind of inactive approach pushing against to this kind of just sole focus on the brain. Um, this kind of extended approaches uh, take that as well. So they say, well, really is, is the mind just brain bound? Like is the mind just in the brain? And they say, well, maybe it extends out into our full body, but also into the environment. So um, uh, people like uh, Andy Clark and, and Chalmers, obviously a key, key people in this area. So the general kind of ideas in more contemporary society is like even things like our phones or our iPhones like um, shape our cognition and allow for certain types of cognitive accomplishments. So um, uh, you think of like phone numbers back, like people off philosophers use this example all the time. Like we used to have to just remember <laughs> people's phone numbers and <laughs> in order to call them on our little, our, our home phones, which I don't, people don't even really have home phones these days. Um, so in a way in contemporary society, we offloaded that into our phones. Um, so we don't know people's numbers off by heart anymore, but the phones allow us to do those certain types of cognitive tasks. So that's, that's the, that's the general idea. And uh, it is, there's, there's a variety of different kind of perspectives on an active approaches, but um, that's kind of the, the basic, basic thing. And it, it just resonates with me from that more kind of holistic perspective. So appreciating people's engagement with uh, kind of their, their physical environment and the different uh, devices they use that could be even assistive devices, a wheelchair, um, uh, prosthetics, these types of things. There's, there's clinical and, science and research implications there. Um, but a lot of inactive thinkers take it even a bit further by saying it's not just about these physical items in the environment, it's about uh, our institutions, our, our academic institutions, our legal institutions, these kind of social entities can also act as scaffolding for the mind or shape the mind and the way that we experience our worlds in, in different ways. So it sounds a bit radical, but I think when you really break it down, it's like, it's, it's kind of common, common sense in, in a lot of ways. Like these things shape how we experience the world, how we experience our bodies. And mm -hmm. so I think it's quite important because 
clinically, if we don't appreciate those elements, we may overlook them or we may take them away and it may actually send a person down a, a path that maybe isn't that constructive. Yeah. 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 You just triggered a thought there with, uh, with which took me back to when I, when I trained as a nurse, it was, um, we did loads and loads of, of psychology stuff and sociological stuff and, and looked at in the effects of institutionalization. And I can't remember the book and the guy, there's a book and a guy, as there always is with these things. <laughs> yeah. um, it's gone from me. But, but, you know, that it just triggered that, that memory when you were talking about, you know, these, these institutions being an extension of your mind and how, how they can really shape you. You know, we, my, my school shaped the way that I think. Um, you know, my university and shape the way that I think. That my, my sports club or whatever can shape the way that you see yourself in the world. And I think that that's what's so attractive to me about it is like, because I think historically we have maybe underappreciated the role of clinicians, um, like and, and the role of that therapeutic alliance in shaping the person's experience. And I think especially over the last five years, there's been a lot more interest in like uh, the dynamics between the clinician and the patient and how a lot of our words and diagnoses are often taken for granted. We didn't realize the impact either positive or negative that can have on the individual. And I think a most prominent example would be like imaging. Um, so there's been that huge push to uh, not, not just routinely take imaging. You need to have indica clinical indications. And um, because we can have those uh, kind of uh, normal age-related changes that we pinpoint and um, can set a person to experience or view their body in a way that maybe isn't productive and um, just normal, natural age-related changes. So I think that's the most kind of obvious example to, to kind of connect connect here yeah yeah no, that's great that's great there, there is another e that and, and correct me if i'm wrong that, that's come up and you may have mentioned it and that's that's ecology and and that kind of lens and what your thoughts are on ecology in relation to pain yeah i was talking with somebody the other day uh, uh laura rathbone and she's like uh, she's like oh there's how many e's are there and because because <laughs> uh, uh, yeah I, and i was like i'm like i regret this introduce like using the word 5e but it is a way to kind of start to make sense of all these things but um the ecological approach is definitely integrated into my thinking so the idea of affordances um stem from from gibson to, from that ecological tradition so um very very congruent and, and aligned with an active thinking and um uh, uh, the kind of the, the ecological psychology and activism are very kind of historically intertwined. So most inactive papers these days, you often see people talking about Gibson, you, you see people talking about affordances and just cause it, it, I think it blends nicely with, with, with these ideas. So um, I'm, I'm on board. Um, <laughs> lately I've just been calling it like uh, just inactivism and it just kind of encompasses all the ease um, um, so that we're not just breaking it up. Um, but, but there is some nuance. So some academics don't agree with some of the ease. Um, so some people don't fully buy into some of the extended mind processes or extended mind approaches. So some people will take a 3E perspective or a 4E perspective. So that kind of complicates things, I think, a bit. Um, but from an academic standpoint, it allows for some a bit of nuance and people to describe what they're, they're committing to. Um, I'm, I'm not as, I'm, a, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm a bit broader with some of my ideas, but uh, there's some people that don't, yeah, would, would want to be more specific about what they mean when they talk about the ease, yeah. Yeah, but you're right, you know, defining our terms and particularly when we're talking to patients and when they're describing things to us, 
Um, you know, we, we want to be as sure as we can that we know what they mean. So asking for clarification or giving clarification on, on what, we're, what we're saying is, um, is, is so important, isn't it, on, on that. But I love, with, I love with philosophers and I love listening to, you know, the questions afterwards. And I, I'm sitting there wishing I could even come up with such a question to, to ask, let alone answer it most of the time. And um, there's, there's just a real openness to discussion and, and to the challenge on ideas and the way that they will say, I'm concerned about that, whatever it is. And, it, and it's all done at this, this very oh, professional, authentic kind of way that is just fascinating and engaging, as opposed to other fields where any questions, there's often a, a sense of threat. Um, a very different feel, very different feel in that world. Yeah, I've been noticing, I've been going to a lot more philosophy conferences and I'm like, these are, I'm definitely not at the level where they're at, but I'm like, these are, these are my people. This is good. Like, this is a, uh, I resonate with their approaches and like, uh, yeah, just different. It's very different than the pain conferences that I've always went to kind of historically. And, um, yeah, I'm, appre I'm appreciating these kind of ways that they ask questions and the, the nuances there. And I'm trying to, uh, trying to draw from inspiration from them and working with philosophers these days. It's, it's so rewarding and learning a ton as I go. So um, yeah, so, <laughs> I'm not as nuanced and as detailed. I don't have as thoughtful questions as they, <laughs> they come up with. Um, and I probably just like butcher a lot of these kind of philosophical ideas because I kind of take them and, and run with them with kind of the knowledge that I have, but I'm, I'm trying. I, I mean, I mean, well, but uh, yeah. nobody's criticized me yet uh, openly. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll come. Yeah, probably, you know, we, yeah. you know, we, we know the, the way the world is, but, but ultimately, you know, your, your energy and enthusiasm will, will definitely, you know, win people over and, you know, and you say you've clearly got a passion for this, this area, but from a, from a more personal perspective, then what, what's your outlook for the kind of, for, for pain and persistent pain? How, how do you feel about the future? Looks better. It's looking good, looking a lot better from over the last five years. Like I even like, I know I mentioned this quite a bit, like students are changing, like, like they're interested in these types of things, whereas maybe five years they weren't. So more and more students are coming in like interested in kind of biopsychosocial approaches, interested in philosophy, interested in pain theories, where that wasn't the case when I first started working, working with students. Like they're more interested in like core stability, like T TA exercises, like functional movement patterns, those types of things were like the hot topics. And it's starting to shift a little bit where people are like talking about the therapeutic alliance is cool. Or like that was now, like, it was definitely like, not the thing when I first started like doing my master's and I, I'd talk about like placebo effects and nocebo effects. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Like what's a nocebo effect? And I'm like, I don't know, like our words, our words like can, can shape people's experiences and stuff. And they're like, what? That's has nothing to do with like the rehab professions. Like <laughs> <laughs> they just probably thought it was just like so bizarre, but now it's like becoming the kind of the cool thing to do. And to talk about these things, at least in some more and more pockets. Um, there hasn't been really much of a dent in, in kind of the mainstream of what, what, what people are doing, but um, I see, I see, pro I see light. I see light. Mm -hmm. Things are changing a little bit more yeah. openness to these different ideas, more openness to uh, the kind of the, the so-called soft skills in, in clinical practice. Like I said, that's such kind of a horrible term, like soft skills, but I hear people always say, yeah, the soft skills are the hard skills. That's, that's the kind of cliche, but um, mm -hmm. I think there's truth to it. Yeah. 
That sounds very optimistic. And, and maybe there's another layer is there. You mentioned the, you know, the, the generations coming through, the students coming through. It, it sounds like what you're saying is they're more interested in people than they are the practices. Yeah, I think that's a good, yeah, a good, a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's been refreshing and people excited and talking about, yeah, the therapeutic alliance, patient person-centered care. What does that, what does that mean? Like, people want to take like courses on communication and motivational interviewing. And I'm like, I think back like even five years ago where it was like, people were like, oh, I want to take the dry needling courses. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, and, like, that's what yeah. I need. And now people are like, I need to be a better communicator. I need to listen better to my patients. I need to explore their concerns. And I'm like, that's a huge shift. Dry needling versus like a focus on communication. Like, whoo. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, well, listen, it's been fantastic to um, to hear about your work and your ideas and and, and even your, your skateboarding, which we've discovered may even have shaped some of it um, and your 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 own personal philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. For listeners, I came in with no no preparation. So I did uh, my unhinged rants. Hopefully, hopefully people find uh, find them interesting somewhat. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate the invite and enjoyed talking with you. Fantastic. Well, we must we must keep in touch. There's, there's too much shared ground here um, not to. So um, that would be fantastic. Yeah, we would love that for sure. Yeah. Um, where can people find you and, and your work? Where can they read your stuff? Yeah, I'm like horrible at like marketing myself. And <laughs> like uh, I'm, not, I'm not like on social media that much. Um, I use Twitter out of all the platforms. Like I use that. Um, so it's just my name. Like I think it's Peter underscore Stillwell, one L and two L's. Um, so you can find me on there. I'm, I'm happy to send me a DM or send me an email. Like always happy to connect with people if you, if you want to talk more about this type of stuff. Um, I have a website too. Um, so you can, I think that's linked on my Twitter account as well. So I try to keep it updated with just like publications and different kind of uh, knowledge translation things that I've, I've been doing. And um, I try to practice what I preach. So I, my PhD was on like clinical communication and pain and uh, <laughs> I'm trying to be better at that and <laughs> do these knowledge translation initiatives. So um, slowly getting be better at it um, slightly. So opportunities like this help me out a bit. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, you know, you must, I mean, look, this, this work must not remain in, in, you know, ivory towers and behind closed doors and small discussions. You know, this is, this is stuff that I think, you know, really is making a, making a difference. So you, you must, you must communicate it. There we go. Bit of finger wagging for you. And you, do, you, do, <laughs> you do have a, you do have a website because I've seen it. And, yeah. and I will, and I'll, and of course I'll put the links on the, um, on the page so people can, uh, can find them and, uh, and they should read them. There we go. There's finger wagging to them as well. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fantastic. Listen, thanks again. And um, yeah, keep in touch. Yeah. Thanks.